Welcome to episode 57 of the Montana Values Podcast. Dean Ornish said, quote, I strongly believe that the founding fathers of our country got it right. Power corrupts, and anytime you have too much power concentrated in one place, it tends to get abused. So checks and balances are always needed, end quote. Let's talk all about that with our host, Tammy Fisher. Well, this month has been a month of updates on past podcasts. This week, we learned the fate of one Rodney Robert Smith. We talked about Mr. Smith in our 49th episode and how the Attorney General, Austin Knutson, waded into Mr. Smith's case and took the case from the local county attorney. Here's the facts as best we can tell. In November 2020, that's two months before Austin Knutson even became Attorney General, Rodney Robert Smith was criminally charged with felony assault with a weapon and misdemeanor assault by the Lewis and Clark County Attorney's Office after allegedly showing a holstered firearm to a Helena restaurant employee who repeatedly asked him to wear a face mask. Montana was under a statewide mask requirement at the time. According to court documents, Smith and his wife were repeatedly warned by employees at the Helena restaurant last November that they needed to wear face masks. In response, Smith allegedly knocked over water glasses on a table and then shoved a restaurant employee. When other workers tried to restrain him, Smith allegedly hit an employee in the genitals several times and then pinned the employee to a wall. Smith then allegedly exposed a handgun he had in a black holster in his waistband. He patted it with his hand and made the statement to an employee to the effect of, I'm going to get you, according to the complaint. Smith was charged by the Lewis and Clark County attorney, Leo Gallagher, with four crimes. One, assault with a weapon, a felony, misdemeanor assault, and two misdemeanor weapons offenses. The misdemeanor weapons offenses became legal acts after the legislature met in 2021. So Austin Knutson, the attorney general, tells Gallagher, the county attorney, drop the two misdemeanors. And Gallagher tells Knutson, no thanks, and if you want to manage this case, you take the whole case and not just parts of it. So Austin took over the whole case, which he is authorized to do under Montana law. But Austin's interference in this case is what Montanans question. Why? Why, oh, why did he get involved? Of all the cases in Montana, why was this one so important to the attorney general, the guy that is the chief law enforcement officer in the state? Why meddle in Lewis and Clark County business, especially when they're pursuing justice, especially when they're charging criminals? It's not like the county attorney was reticent to charge the criminal. In fact, he was aggressive in charging the criminal. So the attorney general wades in. And at the end of our last podcast on this issue, that's podcast number 49, we told you, our loyal listeners, that you would be able to find the motivations for the attorney general's actions in the outcome of the case. And the outcome now leaves more questions than answers. Mr. Smith apparently is going to plead guilty to an offense through a plea agreement. And a plea agreement is just an agreement made between the prosecutor and the criminal defense attorney and the defendant. They agree instead of going to trial that they're going to enter into an agreement where, in this case, the offense that Mr. Smith will be pleading guilty to isn't even one of the offenses that were originally charged. He's pleading guilty to disorderly conduct and all of the other charges are being dismissed. And for his offense, his fine is set to be less than a speeding ticket. $50, no jail time. So what is disorderly conduct? According to the state of Montana... 
Code 45-8-101. Disorderly conduct. A person commits the offense of disorderly conduct if the person knowingly disturbs the peace by quarreling, challenging to fight or fighting, making loud or unusual noises, using threatening, profane, or abusive language, rendering vehicular or pedestrian traffic impassable, rendering the free ingress or egress to public or private places impassable, disturbing or disrupting any lawful assembly or public meeting, creating a hazardous or physically offensive condition by any act that serves no legitimate purpose or in the course of engaging in any of the conduct prohibited by the foregoing subsections, a peace officer recognizes the person's conduct creates an articulable public safety risk. Disorderly conduct is essentially Montana's misdemeanor drunken public offense. It doesn't cover physical touching. That's what assault is for. It does cover threats. It doesn't cover any weapons violations or threats made with weapons. So is a plea of guilty to this offense appropriate for the facts of this case? Well, not according to one of the victims. And remember what we talked about in episode 49, that the just outcome of this case by Montana standards is whether the victim received justice. Not whether Mr. Smith got what he wanted for an outcome, but whether the resolution ensures the victim received justice. Because in Montana, victims matter. They aren't just a number. And while you don't want to over-penalize anyone for bad conduct, you do want to be sure that victims are included or consulted in any pretrial resolution so that they understand why, as a prosecutor, you came to the conclusion that a settlement or plea agreement was appropriate for the facts of the case. Well, according to one victim, apparently he wasn't consulted and he is hopping mad. This is what one of the victims, Mr. Schneider, has to say. This is an outrage. Let's set the record straight. I hope and pray this isn't over. My name is John Schneider. I am and was the general manager at Helena Hokkaido Ramen and Sushi Bar. This is a travesty and unbelievable outcome to a traumatizing and horrible, unnecessary event that was 100% Mr. Smith's fault. Here is an exact account of the events in question. On the night in question, Mrs. Smith entered the restaurant unmasked to use the restroom, and when I saw, I politely asked to wear a mask while not seated in the restaurant, as I did with hundreds of other customers that disagreed with the rule or mandate at the time. She ignored me and then came back from the bathroom unmasked, and I approached her again and requested she wear a mask while inside and unseated or she couldn't eat here. She ignored me again. So I recognized her by that point and said, Mrs. Smith, you know I know who you are. And if you're not going to follow the rules and ignore me, I didn't appreciate it and you aren't welcome in the restaurant. Please leave and don't come back. She went outside and was apparently still on the waiting list. I was in another area of the restaurant and Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith, and another gentleman were buzzed for their seats and all entered unmasked. The host politely asked them to wear a mask just while not seated and inside and they were rude to the host and ignored him twice and sat themselves. When the host brought it to my attention, I walked over and was surprised it was Mrs. Smith and her party. I thought she had left. So at that point, I again politely asked Mr. and Mrs. Smith to leave the restaurant two more times. He argued and said, 
we already have our drinks, waters that were automatically brought by the server. And then he shouted, F this or F you, then flipped up the table, knocking over the three waters on the table. His server, a female veteran, and also my fiancé at the time and now my wife, then told him to get out of the restaurant now, to which he went up to her and grabbed her with two hands on both sides of her arms and violently shoved her. I was pretty shocked at his response, but immediately attempted to restrain Mr. Smith without using excessive force, and he forced me against the wall. I put him in a reserve guillotine headlock and held him there with my back against the wall for about 20 to 30 seconds while he kept punching and hitting me in the groin. It all happened so fast, but my concern was for the safety of the employees and customers as he was clearly intoxicated, he smelled like alcohol badly, and had already shown no restraint or intention to leave by grabbing and pushing our female veteran server. This was all witnessed by at least 10 customers in the immediate area as well as myself, the server, one of our cooks who came out when our assistant general manager at the time yelled to the back for help, our prep manager and our bartender who was already on the phone with the police after he heard the commotion. Part of the altercation was on camera, but the table they were at was behind a wall in the front corner of the restaurant, obscuring most of the altercation from the video footage. It does show me asking Mrs. Smith to leave the first time before she left and trespassed. The video shows them all entering unmasked, ignoring the host, and walking right past him seating themselves. It also showed him storming out of the restaurant, kicking over a vase or decoration, and with a visible item in a holster on his right hip. The video footage, which I'm pretty sure we can obtain from our security company if given the opportunity, can be made available for the newspaper, police, courts, state attorney general, or anyone else to view if needed. We were all very much looking forward to testifying under oath about the facts in this horrible event, but we were never given the opportunity because somehow the state attorney general took the case from the county attorney against his wishes, and the trial was canceled in August. After I withstood his groin punches and had him headlocked for 20 to 30 seconds, his male friend with him said, let him go. I looked around and made eye contact with my cook and my prep manager and thought it was safe as possible to let him go, and I responded, I'll let him go, but you better have him. His friend nodded, so I released Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith then backed up, ripped off his shirt, exposing an unknown gun holstered on his hip. He looked at me, patted his clearly visible holstered black handgun on his right hip and said, I'm going to get you. I put my hands in the air and said, just leave, man. The cops are on their way. He never pulled the gun out of the holster or approached me again, but cursed and started storming out, kicking over a vase and almost breaking the door on his way out. Mrs. Smith followed him laughing and actually said, that was awesome. We then witnessed them going into their minivan in the parking lot to the west of the restaurant. We went outside and the cops showed up within seconds of them entering their minivan. They pulled up in front and we pointed them out and showed them where to cut them off as they attempted to flee. The cops cut them off at our direction and detained Mr. Smith, who apparently concealed the gun in his van before exiting and being detained. He lied to the police and said he never entered the restaurant with a weapon. Mrs. Smith told the police he did have the gun on him when they entered the restaurant and the cops found it in the minivan. 
I and several other employees all separately gave out statements to our amazing police officers that were very quick to respond, and they put our frazzled minds at ease, assuring us that justice would be done. Our statements were all identical and not disputed. I believe one of the officers said open and shut case. How is this possible that he's not in any trouble? I was surprised that we weren't contacted further and was horrified and disgusted when someone forwarded me the Helena Independent Records original article detailing the state attorney general taking the case over after the county attorney said he could not, in good conscience, drop the charges due to overwhelming evidence. Where are my rights? Where are my wife's rights? Where are the restaurant's rights? How is this possible? So it doesn't sound like the attorney general contacted the victims, much less explained his reasoning in entering into a plea agreement with Mr. Smith, where he pleads guilty to disorderly conduct, which is not a lesser included offense of any of the offenses that were actually charged. And listen, man, I was a prosecutor. There's lots of reasons to enter into plea agreements and resolve cases differently than was originally charged because as you collect evidence, the facts become clearer. But it sounds like here, the AG's office never even subpoenaed the videotape. Sounds like the AG's office never contacted any of the alleged victims. Sounds like the AG's office never considered the alleged victims' restitution needs as several are reported to have incurred counseling and other medical expenses as a result of this event. So why then would the Attorney General take this case over and then not engage in a discussion with the alleged victims? I mean, maybe he did, but he's not telling anyone about it. He wouldn't return the phone calls from the press. But Mr. Smith's attorney, Palmer Huvestal, who is well-known in the legal field and is an excellent defense attorney, well, he did talk to the press and said the following. Quote, The truth is that this is the appropriate disposition of the matter under the facts of the case, and it is the proper exercise of prosecutorial discretion. There was no video from the restaurant proving or corroborating the allegations made by the complainant, and witnesses who were present subsequently disputed the events including whether Mr. Smith was even carrying a firearm, end quote. Yeah, well, except according to at least one alleged victim, there is video evidence for part of the event. It just wasn't subpoenaed by the attorney general. In addition, according to an affidavit filed by the original county attorney in the case, quote, a corporal with the Helena Police Department observed Smith in his van outside the restaurant pull something from his waistband and then place it in the glove box of the van. Rodney Smith's movements were consistent with drawing a handgun from a holster on the right side of his body, end quote. So there would be at least two pieces of corroborating evidence to indicate a firearm was used and to confirm the alleged victim's version of events. And while Huvasal says that the lack of a video of the incident, quote, calls into play a segment of state law saying that if stronger evidence is available, weaker evidence should be viewed with distrust. Except for that legal maxim indicates that stronger evidence is available. What stronger evidence is available other than the accused's own wife verifying he had the gun in the restaurant? Five currently employed restaurant workers. The cops eyewitness testimony of Smith pulling something from his waistband and placing it in the jockey box. And partial video evidence. I mean, that's pretty strong evidence. The legal maxim Huvestal is talking about doesn't even apply here because 
There is no stronger evidence to compare the actual evidence to and to determine the actual evidence is weaker. Now, Huvestal also says that the alleged victim said there was video of the event but didn't produce the video. Well, it's not incumbent on the victim to produce anything. It's incumbent upon the prosecutor to obtain all of the evidence, and if there was a video, even if it's partially obscured, it was the prosecutor's obligation to subpoena the evidence for chain of command purposes and to ensure its integrity. That's not the victim's job. And based upon the emails between the county attorney and the attorney general's office, the county attorney told the attorney general, if you need the video evidence, contact the Helena PD evidence technician. We have no idea if that occurred, but we do know for sure it's not the victim's obligation to determine or solicit what the evidence is in a case. Huvestal also says that one of the alleged victims had motive to lie about the facts because he had a prior dispute with Mr. Smith's wife. But it was Mr. Smith's wife who incriminated Mr. Smith by confirming he had a weapon in the restaurant. And that corroborates the assault with a weapon charge. And the cop corroborates Mrs. Smith by saying, yep, Zom draw something out of his waistband and put it in the jockey box. So even if the victim said nothing, there is independent corroboration, independent evidence of his account of the events. So this idea that he's somehow biased is just bullshit. And Huvestal also says... Quote, state law clearly allowed Mr. Smith to communicate to another person the fact that he had a weapon, and it also allowed him to warn or threaten the use of force against the aggressor, including drawing or presenting a weapon, end quote. Yeah, but the problem with that, and, you know, Palmer Huvestal is doing a great job here trying to polish the turd, because the problem with his statement is there's no evidence that Mr. Schneider or any of the other restaurant employees were the aggressor. So that section of the law doesn't apply unless the alleged victim is also an aggressor. And we have no evidence of that. And frankly, that doesn't make much sense. Why would the alleged victim who is the restaurant manager incite violence in his restaurant? I mean, does that even seem possible? Sure, I guess it's possible. But there has to be evidence to support that the manager was physically aggressive towards Mr. Smith, because otherwise Smith was not entitled to threaten others with his weapon because that, dear Montanans, is a felony called assault with a weapon. So you can carry wherever you want, but you can't threaten with your gun unless a physical threat has been made to you. So the alleged victims are clearly displeased with this result, and the AG's office isn't talking. And the defense attorney, Mr. Huvestal, is doing his job, painting as pretty of a picture for his client as possible. But what we still don't know is why did the attorney general get involved in the first place? How did he learn of this case? And why does he care? Of all of the cases in Montana, why does he care about this one? Why didn't he talk to the alleged victim before coming to this plea agreement? Why? Is this the just result? Was Mr. Smith's behavior similar to just a drunk in public? Or was Mr. Smith's behavior more egregious once he placed his hands on the alleged victims? Is that where disorderly conduct turns into assault? And is that why we have two distinguishable offenses in Montana, where if you touch another human, you face assault charges and up to a year in prison? But if you just 
berate another Montanan, you face disorderly conduct and no more than a $100 fine. And at most, at the very most, one day in jail. Because as Montanans, don't we appreciate the sanctity of our own bodies, the ability to be left alone, to mind our own business, and to have personal space? Don't we value the right to be physically left alone over the desire to just not encounter belligerent drunks? Isn't one more offensive, substantially more offensive than the other? Well, we think so. And isn't that what we teach our kids, too? To respect the privacy of individuals and the right to be left alone? And we know that the mask mandate was controversial, and folks who didn't like the mandate would say the same thing. Don't we have the right to be left alone and do what we want? Yes, you do. But not when you enter into private property. When you go into a restaurant that is private property, you are subject to the restaurant's rules. And for sure, during the period of the governmental mandate, it's not the employee's fault for enforcing the mandate. They aren't doing anything wrong, and I would guess that many of them hated to do enforcement. But they enforced under the threat of a government shutdown. So we can't blame the restaurant workers here. We can't blame the alleged victims. If you want to take a stand against the government mandate, rail against the government. But you don't get to rail against private business and its employees. Finally, what in the Sam hell is Austin Knutson doing? He's making a mockery of his office for political purposes. He is proving that justice in Montana isn't blind at all. Between this event and the hospital ivermectin event and his attack on the Supreme Court that went nowhere, all Austin is proving is that if you know him, you get a pass and special favors. But if you don't know him and you are just a regular old Montanan trying to get by, well, if you are harmed and your abuser knows Austin. Sorry, kid, you're on your own. Because instead of working towards ending the methamphetamine crisis in Montana like he promised during his campaign, he's busy doling out favors to his political comrades. And that feels a lot more like Russia than Montana, doesn't it? This is what happens when unqualified people are elected to the highest and most powerful offices in the state of Montana. They use their office for personal and political gain. And as we heard from the Supreme Court in 1899, quote, the attorney general is the principal law officer of the state. His duties are general. His authority is coextensive with public legal affairs of the whole community. His advice often affects the rights of all persons within the state and, accepting judgments and orders of court, his opinions control public interests more largely than do the acts of any other official of the state. Responsibilities of so high a character are usually put upon a lawyer of ability, experience, and character. And presuming the Attorney General to be such, the statute has given him the significant, yet extensive, powers referred to. And when those powers are misused, as we have seen over the past year, Montana, God save us. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we should have known. His election is our fault.
Let that sink in. Austin Knutson is the Corey Stapleton of the Attorney General's office. But the Attorney General has vastly more power than the Secretary of State. And the Attorney General has gone rogue with that power, favoring criminal defendants over crime victims, shunning the authority of the Montana Supreme Court, throwing his weight around the state, and pressuring hospital staff to disregard their medical ethics for the sake of his need to be a hero to his political donors. And the truth is, Montana, no one's going to stop him. So we have two more years of this, and then will a deep red Montana wake up and realize the guy holding the seat doesn't care one whit about justice, undermines the credibility of the cops under his authority, and can't be bothered to even take a nibble out of crime, let alone a bite out of crime? Wake up, Montana, or we will find ourselves in the midst of another decade of Copper King corruption. Thank you for taking us with you on your journey today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Montana Values Podcast. Consider sponsoring the show by going to our website, montanavaluespodcast.com, locating the sponsor page and clicking on the donate button. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MTValues. Find us on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your favorite Montana value? How do you live it? Write to us. Our email address is montanavaluespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.